Hello and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. This episode is going to cover what I feel is one of the better movies of the 1980s and the best and most undeservedly ignored movie by one of the decade's most provocative and controversial filmmakers, Oscar-winning writer and director Oliver Stone. The movie is Talk Radio. is rotten to the core and somebody better do something about it. I want you to take your hand out of that bowl of Fritos, throw away your National Enquirer and pick up the phone. Go ahead, pick it up, hold it up to your face and dial 555-TALK, open your mouth and tell me what we're going to do about the mess this country's in. Talk radio. It's the last neighborhood in town. People just don't talk to each other anymore. Let's go to the first caller. Uh, Night Talk, Agnes. Yeah. I love Lucy. Now why don't they make more of it? Those shows are ancient, Agnes. Lucille Ball must be at least 105 years old. The rest of the cast is dead. <laughs> Barry Metroid is going to be picking up the show starting Monday night. Link it to a national theme. We have a very special guest with us. Kent is the classic American youth, energetic and resourceful, spoiled, perverse, and disturbed. Would you say that's an accurate description, Kent? Take Barry, you should ask me if you want to have a guest on the show. Why? Because I'm the boss, Barry, that's why. All you have to do is just be nice, okay? Uh, easy, Bear. You're part of the problem, you see. I don't care what you think. No one does. He's going down in flames, Dan. So what? You get the package I sent down to the station. See, if I were you, I'd have my pretty assistant give the police a call. Take the bomb squad about ten minutes to get down Bomb squad? Why, why, why should I call the bomb squad? Tell me something. I, I, I'm curious. How do you dial a phone with a straitjacket on? <laughs> I am posting this episode just after midnight Eastern Time on Monday, December 21st, 2020, which just happens to be the 32nd anniversary of the movie's theatrical release. I did not plan it this way, but I will happily accept this accident of timing. Talk Radio began its life as a one-act, 110-minute play written by and starring Eric Bogosian, which would officially premiere at Joseph Papp's Public Theater in New York City in May of 1987. Bogosian had already been a well-known entity in the New York City theater world for more than a decade for his one-man shows, including 1981's Men Inside, in which Bogosian would perform all 14 of the characters he created for the show. It would be around this time that Bogosian would start to work with visual artist Ted Savener on the looks of his shows on stage. During one of their work sessions after Men Inside had finished its off-Broadway run, trying to come up with a new idea for a show, Savinar would ask Bogosian if he had ever listened to talk radio. Bogosian said that he was not familiar with the format, but he would soon find himself fascinated by the psychology which would be in play between host and caller on often emotionally charged broadcasts. In 1983, Bogosian started to write what would become his play, Talk Radio. Originally, Bogosian's radio talk show host lead was a boring, mild-mannered radio host, someone not unlike New York talk show host Bernard Meltzer, the amiable host of a show called What's Your Problem? 
that aired in New York City and Philadelphia between 1967 and 1995. To give you an idea of just how bland Meltzer was, here is a short segment of one of Meltzer's appearances in 1983 on Late Night with David Letterman. My first guest uh, tonight uh, is considered to be one of the most trusted uh, people in American broadcasting. Uh, he has heard on over 120 radio stations. Uh, he helps callers solve problems that they cannot cope with, everything from squirrels in the attic to dishonest landlords in the attic. Um, welcome, please, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Bernard Meltzer. Uh, I, must ah. have, I must tell you that I've been uh, enjoying you. Enjoying your radio show, and I have a question. In honor of this occasion, I put on my bow tie. It looks, it looks very nice. It isn't every day that I have the honor of appearing on a David Letterman show. Oh, that's right. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me ask you what kind of a doctor you are. Oh, in the field of economics. Uh-huh. So this is a, a Ph.D. degree. Yeah. Yeah. And how did a gentleman who uh, is an expert in economics become a radio talk show host? Well, actually, of course, I started out way back a long time ago when I was a lot younger and a lot more handsome as a civil engineer. In June 1984, while working on his play, an event half the country away would impact the direction of the show. Bogosian would read about the murder of Denver-based Jewish radio talk show host Alan Berg. Berg often challenged his listeners with his very liberal viewpoints, often confronting members of various white supremacist groups on the air. Here is a short clip of Berg with one of his callers three years before his death. And please forgive the poor sound quality of this 40-year-old recording off an AM radio feed. All of you heard of Malin Berg on KOA News Talk 85. Line one, you're on the air. Alan, uh, I need to ask you a couple of three questions if you answer me those. Were you, you're an attorney, aren't you? Sure am. You were or are you still I, are? I, sir, I am an attorney. Where did you practice law? In uh, Alaska. In Alaska. No, sir, I practiced in Illinois for 13 years. Oh, uh, I heard something. I wanted just to see if it's true or not. Oh, Were you disbarred? I just flip this little one. I want to hear it. Okay. Were you disbarred? No, sir. And would you care to check it? Would you care to check it right now? Well, I'm just asking you. No, because, see, I don't like the drop, pal. Anybody, I've done this for seven years. I've been this busy. Get on the phone right now. Call the Chicago Bar Association. Ask them if the legal status of Alan Burke. Did you do that? Now the question I have for you is... Oh, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did you hear what I just said? Heard you. Okay, I, do you accept but, that or do you challenge me? I am going to do that. Oh, do that right away. Okay, now I have... On the night of June 18, 1984, Berg was returning to his downtown Denver townhouse after having dinner with his estranged wife when he was shot 12 times by an assailant with a Mac-10 submachine gun, which had been modified to be used as an automatic weapon. Four members of a white supremacist group known as the Order were arrested and put to trial. At the trial for his murder, the prosecutors contended that Berg had been singled out for assassination by the Order because he was a Jew and because his personality incurred the anger of white supremacists. Only two of the four defendants were eventually found guilty, not of homicide, which was a state charge, but of racketeering conspiracy, and for violating Berg's civil rights, which are all federal charges, and the two defendants would be sentenced to 190 and 250 years in prison. One of the defendants who was found guilty, David Lane, was the person who coined the 14 words that have served as a rallying cry for militant white nationals around the globe. I will not be repeating those words here tonight. Reading about Berg and his murder deeply affected Bogosian and would recharge his desire to complete his new work in a new direction. 
Bogosian and Savinar would workshop an abbreviated version of talk radio, at this time only 30 pages long, at the Center for Visual Arts in Savinar's hometown of Portland, Oregon in 1985. Bogosian, as Cleveland shock jock Barry Champlain, would be the only actor seen on stage, while three local actors would sit offstage performing as various callers in to Champlain's show, while Savinar created images and video would be projected behind Bogosian. This workshop showcase would only be performed three times during one weekend, and buoyed by the positive word of mouth from audiences and local critics, Bogosian and Savinar would head back to New York City to continue to work on talk radio, as well as another show Bogosian was writing, Drinking in America, which would open in New York City in 1986 to sold-out performances during its short off-Broadway run. For Drinking in America, Bogosian would be awarded the first of two Obie Awards, the off-Broadway version of the Tony Awards, for playwriting. One of the people who would see Drinking in America was public theater producer Joseph Papp. After that performance, Papp would meet Bogosian backstage and ask the actor-writer if he had any new shows waiting in the wings. Bogosian would mention talk radio, which he was in the middle of expanding from its then-current 30 pages. Fine, Papp replied. It's on the schedule for next year. That was it. He didn't need to read the show. He didn't need to see it performed. If Joseph Papp believed in you, that's all you needed. To list even some of Papp's successes on the stages of New York City would take longer than I wish to spend time on it when I'm trying to talk about one specific movie. But briefly, we have the annual summer Shakespeare in the Park program thanks to Joseph Papp, as well as shows such as Hair, A Chorus Line, For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide, and the 100th anniversary production of Gilbert and Sullivan's The Pirates of Penzance, which would make Kevin Klein a star before he ever made a single performance on television or in movies. Other people who would benefit from Paps believing in them before anyone else did were Richard Dreyfus, James Earl Jones, Raul Julia, John Lithgow, Martin Sheen, Meryl Streep, and Sam Waterston. Again, just to name a few. So now the clock was running. Pap wanted the show to premiere on May 27, 1987. So Bogosian had six months to finish writing the show, cast it, rehearse it, and help Savinar with the onstage visuals. Amongst the actors who would perform either onstage as employees of the radio station and or callers offstage included Zach Grenier, best known today as Edward Norton's boss in Fight Club, John C. McGinley and Mark Metcalf, two young actors who had just been featured in Oliver Stone's Oscar-winning film Platoon, and Michael Wincott. The show would run at the public theater to sold-out houses for six months, and one of the people who would see talk radio at the public theater was film producer Edward R. Pressman, who was in New York supervising his latest production, Oliver Stone's follow-up to Platoon, Wall Street, which would also feature John C. McGinley in a supporting role. Pressman wanted to see what would regularly be pulling his young actor away from the movie that was in production between April and July. Pressman was impressed and would quickly snap up the film rights to the show, having previously purchased the movie rights to two other public theater productions in the past, The Pirates of Penzance and Plenty, a David Hare play from 1983. 
Pressman would talk to a few filmmakers about bringing talk radio to the screen, but he would only have one condition. Eric Bogosian must play Barry Champlain on screen. One director said no, that they would prefer to see Dustin Hoffman at the radio mic. Hoffman at the time was waiting for a production of Steven Spielberg's Rain Man to get back on track, so he wasn't available anyway. And yes, you heard me correctly. In the fall of 1987, Steven Spielberg was attached to direct Rain Man, having taken over the project from Beverly Hills Cop director Martin Bress, who left to make Midnight Run. Spielberg would leave Rain Man in October 1987, and Sidney Pollack would come aboard for a short time before the production finally started in May 1988 with Barry Levinson as director. Maybe we'll talk about Rain Man on a future episode. While Pressman was searching for a director, he asked his friend and frequent collaborator, Stone, if he would help Bogosian, who had never written a movie screenplay before, to help write the movie version of Talk Radio. Stone, the winner of an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay for Midnight Express in 1978, was already done with putting the final touches on Wall Street, and he agreed to help, since his expected follow-up film, Born on the Fourth of July, was being delayed due to Tom Cruise's commitment to Rain Man. It would be Stone who would help give Barry Champlain a more liberal stance than Bogosian's original characterization, add in a few additional characters like an ex-wife who acts as a sort of Jiminy Cricket-like conscience for the shock jock, and would move the setting from Cleveland to Dallas to make the ending more palpable. Stone enjoyed working with Bogosian, the would-be screenwriter, and getting to know Bogosian, the person, that he would call Pressman up late in the year and suggest himself for the directing job. Knowing the film would be a much lower budgeted affair than the $15 million Wall Street, or even the $6 million Platoon, Stone would need to take a far lower salary than the most recent Oscar-winning director would expect to get. There would be no stars in the film per se. The biggest name actor at the time would probably have been Alec Baldwin, even though he had only made his film debut one year earlier, and for whom talk radio would be the fifth of five movies he would be featured in during 1988 that would make him a name actor. After John Hughes's She's Having a Baby, Tim Burton's Beetlejuice, Jonathan Demme's Married to the Mob, and Mike Nichols's Working Girl, Baldwin would play Dan, the manager of the radio station. Other actors in the movie would include John C. McGinley, who would both be returning to his stage role as Stu, Barry's control room person, and would be making his third movie with Stone in three years. Michael Wincott, returning to his stage role as a young man who an intrigued Barry invites into the confines of his radio booth after a strange phone call into the show. Little Shop of Horrors is Ellen Green as Barry's ex-wife. To live and die in L.A.'s John Pankow as an executive at a radio network that wants to take Barry's shows national and newcomer Leslie Hope as Laura, Barry's assistant and girlfriend. The $4.5 million film would begin shooting in and around Dallas on April 4, 1988, less than four months after Talk Radio the Stage Play ended its run at the Public Theater. A good portion of that budget would go into creating a fully equipped radio station set that was housed at a newer production space in nearby Irving, Texas, where most of the 25-day shoot would take place. 
Pressman would also need to acquire the rights to a 1987 book about Alan Berg, Stephen Singular's Talk to Death, The Life and Murder of Alan Berg, as Stone and Bogosian liberally borrowed several passages from the book, actual transcripts of Berg's phone conversations with his listeners almost verbatim. Talk to Death was also handed out to every member of the stage show by Bogosian to read as sort of homework. To make sure he got the feel of a talk show host right, Bogosian was able to spend time with Los Angeles-based talk show host Tom Lakis in the control room for a few weeks. If you're familiar with Lakis, Barry Champlain might sound a little familiar to you, as Bogosian would, purposely or inadvertently, lift a number of Lakis's vocal tics and mannerisms. After production ended in May, Stone needed to finish post-production rather quickly, as he finally had a September 1988 start date for Born on the Fourth of July. But post wouldn't be that hard for a movie that mostly takes place within four rooms of a radio station, with only a handful of scenes outside those walls. Stuart Copeland, the drummer of the police, who had moved into soundtracks and scores since the 1984 disbandment of the group, would create the mostly percussive score, and Cineplex Odeon Films, the film production and distribution unit of the same-named cinema chain, would utilize their partnership with company part owner Universal Pictures to send the film out to theaters. Universal would open the movie on six screens in major markets, including the Beekman Theater in New York City and the Cineplex Odeon Century Plaza Cinemas in Century City on Wednesday, December 21st, which would include Christmas Day that Sunday. The film would get some very strong positive reviews from critics, although Vincent Camby of the New York Times, an admitted fan of the stage show, would say in his review that this was not the way to adapt the story to the screen. I wholeheartedly disagree. But in those first five days, the film would gross an impressive $80,000. And in its second weekend, the long New Year's weekend, the film would gross $133,000 from the same six theaters. And after its third weekend, still only on six screens, talk radio would have already grossed over $400,000. But Universal and Cineplex were not sure how to market the film to those outside major market medias like Chicago and Los Angeles and New York City. It's easy to get the big city intelligentsia to come out and see the new Oliver Stone movie, but it's a completely different beast to get those outside of the top major media markets to come see an R-rated movie full of F-bombs about a not very likable character played by an actor you've never heard of with a whole bunch of actors you've barely heard of, especially when your poster is nothing more than a hand holding a phone rising above the title. When the film went somewhat wide in its fourth weekend, expanding from six theaters to 645, it would gross more than a million dollars. But the per-screen average would drop more than 87.5%, and there's rarely ever any coming back from that. The film would drop another 50% in its fifth week, despite adding another eight screens, and the film would disappear from theaters with a final gross of $3.48 million before the Oscar nominations were announced in mid-February. And for the first time in three years, an Oliver Stone movie would not receive a single Academy Award nomination. When I was a younger man in the late 1980s, building up my collection of VHS tapes, 
Talk Radio was one of the movies that would get a regular play when I was at home. I was fascinated by Stone's direction, cinematographer Robert Richardson's camera work, seemingly always on the move, and when it's not, often utilizing some of the best split diopter work in modern cinema, and especially Bogosian's deft tightrope walk of a man trying to make sense of a world he does not relate to, and of his own place in it. It's clear Barry Champlain doesn't like himself, doesn't like his listeners, and doesn't like that he feels he has nothing else to offer but an imprudent tirade of abuse for himself, his friends, his lovers, and his audience. Take, for example, this sequence towards the end of the film. Barry has not had a good night, even though he has just been informed his local show is about to become syndicated, giving him the opportunity to speak to the entire nation. Most people given that kind of information would revel in their success, but not Barry. As you listen to this clip, remember that this is from a movie that was written, produced, and released 32 years ago. Believe it or not, it made perfect sense to me. I should hang. I'm a hypocrite. I ask for sincerity and I lie. I denounce the system as I embrace it. I want money and power and prestige. I want ratings and success. I don't give a damn about you or the world. That's the truth. For this, I could say I'm sorry, but I won't. Why should I? I mean, who the hell are you anyways, you audience? You're on me every night like a pack of wolves because you can't stand facing what you are and what you've made. Yes, the world is a terrible place. Yes, cancer and garbage disposals will get you. Yes, a war is coming. Yes, the world is shut to hell and you're all goners. Everything's screwed up and you like it that way, don't you? You're fascinated by the gory details. You're mesmerized by your own fear. You revel in, in floods, car accidents, unstoppable diseases. You're happiest when others are in pain. That's where I come in, isn't it? I'm here to lead you by the hand through the dark forest of your own hatred and anger and humiliation. I'm providing a public service. You're so scared. You're like a little child under the covers. You're afraid of the boogeyman, but you can't live without him. Your fear, your own lives, have become your entertainment. Next month, millions of people are going to be listening to this show, and you have nothing to talk about. That sequence goes on for several more minutes. And as you watch it, as Richardson's camera keeps Barry front and center behind his console as the rest of the room, as the people outside of the room rotate around him, it's hard to wonder just how much has changed in the ensuing 32 years. Time hasn't made talk radio a better movie. It's always been a good movie, waiting to be discovered by a larger audience. No, what time has done is make talk radio a more relevant movie. Barry is both the best and worst example of what talk radio has always been, 
and a number of his callers are now more recognizable to us. Those who would call into a radio station with a fake name and talk their smack in some kind of anonymity in 1988 are now the people who walk around proudly in public, waving their tiki torches and waxing poetically about how America needs to be a white society. People who post the most vile, hateful, racist, sexist, misogynistic crap on Twitter and Facebook for shits and giggles to own the libtards. People who proudly await a new American Civil War, thinking that they will be the ones who end up back at the top of a totem pole that they were never a part of in the first place. People who want to see America ripped apart because they cannot stand not being in the lead of a race only they are keeping score of. People who fear what other people not like them will do to them because of what they've done to other people not like them for their entire lives. Shit. Now I'm starting to sound like Barry Champlain. It's an easy trap to fall into, and one so many of us have fallen into. We care about what's happening in the world. But we as individuals are powerless to affect change alone. Eric Bogosian understood that. Oliver Stone understood that. You want to make the world better, and you hope that you are making a difference, but you secretly know that you're not. I've never been the biggest Stone fan. I've only seen 10 of his 21 feature films he's made as a director, and only one in the past quarter century. Talk Radio is the only movie of his I've ever seen more than once, and I think it's my favorite of his movies in large part because it was not a story of his own origin, and he was forced to be disciplined as a filmmaker. He needed to find his way around someone else's sandbox, and he needed to respect that other person's vision since they were also right there in the room. And if you listen to that clip I played a moment ago, you might notice the lack of any kind of score underneath Barry's speech until just as I end the clip. Stuart Copeland created an exceptional score for the film, but sometimes the lack of a score, even for a moment, helps set a better tone for a scene than something unnecessary and intrusive. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. If you've never seen it, I hope you will give it a shot. Now, before we go, there is a small postscript. In 2007, the play Talk Radio would make its Broadway debut with Liev Schreiber as Barry and Sebastian Stan making his Broadway debut as Kent. The show would run for 140 performances between February and June of 2007 and would be nominated for two Tony Awards, Schreiber for Best Actor in a Play and the show for Best Revival of a Play. And as of December 2020, you can watch the movie for free with ads on the NBC streaming service Peacock, or you can rent it ad-free for $3.99 from most major streaming services. Twilight Time put out an exceptional special edition Blu-ray copy of it in February 2019, which includes an isolated music track, the original 1988 trailer for the film, and a 28-minute documentary with Oliver Stone about the making of the movie. If you'd like to learn more, you can visit our website, filmjerk.com, on this podcast's page. Thank you for listening. We'll be taking the next week off, and we'll talk again after the first of the year, where we hope to have more guests talking about their favorite movies and genres of the 1980s. We hope you'll join us. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, produced, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. 
Good night.